So we come now to the proclamation of God's word as we're continuing through the book of Ecclesiastes here um, in our sermon series. Next week, Robert Knuth will be preaching for us. I asked him to preach on specifically on challenging us in regards to mission and our purpose as a church. One of the things I want us to think about and pray about is we're looking at getting a a permanent building, which keep praying about it. Things are moving forward on the the building downtown. I have no real updates yet to share with you, but as we get them, we'll continue to share them. But um, it's easy for us as a church, as believers, to become very inward focused. We get very comfortable with ourselves. But we know as God's people, one of the things we are called to do is to proclaim the gospel to this world. To show forth the truth that Jesus is a good Savior whom we must turn in faith and repentance if we are to uh, escape the condemnation that our sin brings upon us. And so... I want us to start prayerfully thinking about, as a church, how can we do that? How can we be a light shining in the darkness in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in school, showing forth the light of Christ? You know, the world doesn't cease to preach its gospel or gospels to us. We get that all the time. They try to catechize us in the wisdom of man, and we see it all around us. We should not be afraid then as God's people to say we know the light of truth and to call them to Jesus who is a good and loving Savior. There are so many people hurting in this world because they lack the light of the gospel. They do not know the love of God and the forgiveness of sins. So as a church, it is our purpose to proclaim that goodness and so we're looking forward to Robert challenging us in that and thinking about that more as we go forward into the future and seeing what God will do through us here at Christ Church Ann Arbor. But for now, Ecclesiastes 4. Our text this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You can find that in your bulletin if you want to follow along with the reading on page 8. This is God's word. Again, I saw, says the preacher, the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and skill and work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is still no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, too, with withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of all whom he led. Yet those who came after or came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open our eyes and our hearts and minds to see once again your truth. And in seeing it, we would see above all the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that our faith would be all the more strengthened as we look upon him. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we've been going through Ecclesiastes here It is quickly, as I've said this more than once, becoming one of my favorite Old Testament books because the the author, who was likely Solomon, and he calls himself the preacher, the preacher king, he writes with this rawness, this, this open honesty as he looks upon the world and considers what it is like, life under the sun. And so often we read his words and as, as, as people who live under the sun, we are like, yes, I feel that. I see that. I understand that, that there is nothing new under the sun. The suffering we see, the problems we face, the sins we commit and are committed against us, the struggles we all experience, they've been the same from ancient times. Here in chapter 4, the preacher king observes a problem that runs prolific in our current cultural societal moments. And that is the problem of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism proclaims the idea that as humans, our, our psychological core is what defines who we are rather than the fact that we are created in God's image. So in other words, who I think I am and who I want to be and who I feel like I am, that is where I find my purpose. And so all my relationships with other people, how I engage in this world, how I live my life, ultimately what I believe and think is true and right, my own morality, that comes from my own understanding of myself. So truth is within me. It does not exist objectively outside myself. And with expressive individualism, you become your own sovereign. You become a God unto yourself. And even as Christians, as believers, we are not immune to the influences of expressive individualism. Our old hearts, before we come to Christ, apart from from the work of God, bringing about renewal, giving us new life in Him, that old heart is positively bent inward upon itself. And many times it still wants to rear its ugly head. And so we look to our own self-identity, which is pushing us, preaching to us, calling us to become a lesser God. 
than the one to whom we bow down and give our allegiance. And again, though, this problem is not new. As the preacher observed it in his generation, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he records his observations on a society that is given over to the pursuit of self above all other things. And what he observed is this, is that when we worship ourselves, we destroy ourselves. When we worship ourselves, we destroy ourselves. I mean, people really do tend to think more about themselves than anybody else. Consider even the deep questions we ask. Who am I? What am I doing with my life? What is my purpose? Now, those are not bad questions to ask at all. But notice what the main focus is. It is me. It is I. It is myself. We as humans living lives here on this earth under the sun, we focus so much upon me, upon our individual happiness, on our own success. And even our attempts to show compassion and concern for others are often marred by our own self-interest. I mean, we want to leave our own mark on the world. We want to be remembered as someone who was kind and compassionate and loving, someone that has achieved success, who has helped others. But at the end of the day, it's because we, me, I want to be remembered as this. As we've already observed in the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes, Life under this sun has no gain or no profit. It seems so senseless and futile. And we tend to forget that this life we have is God's gift to us. Being a gift then means that it is not something we have earned or it is not something that we even deserve. It is His grace and mercy that brings us here into existence and gives us the things we enjoy. We have done nothing to achieve this. But self-interest and individualism tells us, no, you deserve this. In fact, you deserve better. This is your life. Take hold of it. And so we become important, the most important thing in our lives. But consider the consequences of what happens when we give ourselves over to worshiping ourselves. The preacher observed it in his generation and we see it in ours. And the first fruit of this individualism is this in verse 1. It is oppression. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold, the the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. If you listen to the popular narrative of the day, you would think that oppression is something new, something recent in the history of the world. You'll also hear it portrayed as being a uniquely Western or uniquely American problem. Or it's something that only men are capable of doing. But oppression exists in every age. 
in every part of the world. It affects all levels of society. There is no ethnicity or gender or people group or nation that has a corner on oppression. We as humans, because we are prideful and self-centered in think about ourselves, are drawn to our own power, which leads us to oppress others. You see, oppression is ultimately a matter of self-interest, of individualism. It's an expression of that heart curved inwardly on itself that wants to control others for my own gain, for my happiness and my benefit. And it leaves behind a trail of tears. As we see here, the preacher says, Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. But notice what he says next. He says, on the side of the oppressors, they have power, but there is no one to comfort them. I don't believe he's talking about the oppressors there, or the, the, the oppressed. He's talking about those who are the oppressors, both those who are under their foot and those above. They both are in a sorrowful state of life. You see, oppression is a sin of pride. And because of that, it is ultimately seeking to elevate itself above God, which is a sorrowful thing. For it brings one into direct conflict and enmity with God. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. It is an insult to God Almighty. That is a sorrowful thing. That is a dangerous thing. That will bring destruction to a person who continues in it. And so there is no comfort to those who oppose their maker. And there is no comfort to those who try to be God and reach for power in the pursuit of self-interest and self-expression. They are never satisfied. They are never happy. They never find ultimate fulfillment in their lives because it's impossible for them to achieve that in themselves. And so they oppress and they harm and they hurt, which brings more tears and more tears until the world is drowning in cries for deliverance. The despair of the sinful, broken world is so overwhelming that Solomon, the preacher king, pours out his heart in despair in verses 2 through 3. He looks at all the sorrow of this world and he says the dead are better off because they're dead and not having to experience all this evil and better yet are those who have never been born. And who has not felt that way at some time? Now this isn't a statement that is meant to be taken as an objective truth. Of course life is better than death. It is a good thing to exist. That is a gift of God. The scriptures are clear about that. But sometimes the sorrows of this life and the oppression that we see and the evils that exist all around us and even within our own sinful hearts, they cause us to feel better off if we had never been born, if we had never existed. The preacher turns to another product of of self-worship though. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. 
Envy, of course, is that, that longing for something that belongs to another person. And the preacher observed that in life, under the sun, people are often motivated by envy when it comes to how they will live in this world, particularly how they will work, what they will do, what they try to gain. And at the heart of envy is this individualism, this love of self above all others. The envious person believes they deserve better than what they have, that they deserve more than what they have. Have you ever found it hard sometimes to rejoice in the success of others that you know? A friend of yours gets a promotion and you wonder, why not me? Somebody else has a, a joy that enters into their life and you wonder, why not me? Why can't that be me? Why are they being successful? Why do they have a new house? Why were, did they receive the promotion? Why do they enjoy the life they do? That is all envy. It could drive a person to much irrational and destructive behavior. Envy says that you are a victim when actually you are not. Envy drives people to hatred and to murder. No wonder then Proverbs 14.20 says that envy makes the bones rot. It's like a cancer eating away at your life. And a life motivated by envy, as the preacher says here, is nothing but futility, a senseless striving after the wind, that trying to shepherd the wind. It's pointless. It is so destructive. And so like oppression, envy then comes from this heart of self-worship which harms and others. There is another root of this expressive individualism that he mentions, though, and that is laziness. He says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, this picture of folding of hands is an expression of laziness, of idleness. And to eat one's flesh, of course, is simply a, an expression of self-destruction, of hurting yourself. So he's saying, look, the foolish person is lazy and he's foolish because that laziness, it's hurting himself. It's a refusal to, to work for my benefit and for that of others. And it too is a product of selfish self-interest and expressive individualism. Because laziness or idleness, it is driven by a concern only for myself, for my comfort, for what I want, rather than the comfort and care of those whom God has placed in my life. So laziness does not share. It has no compassion. It will never help others. If envy is the motivation for this excessive work, then laziness leads to no work. And so the preacher offers an alternative. He says, better is a handful of quietness, verse 6, than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. So instead of having two handfuls of work, of obsessive manic drive to acquire more because I'm so envious, I want more, I'm never satisfied. 
And instead of having two hands full of inactivity, laziness, that simply consumes oneself, it is better to have a hand that works and a hand that rests. A balance between activity and repose. But a person that is consumed by their own self-interest falls into either extreme. And it destroys them. A fourth product we see here of worshiping ourselves is lonely despair. The preacher says in verses 7 through 8, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. What he's describing here is the person who fills their life with so much busyness and work and activity that they have no time for building relationships and they leave those relationships behind that God has given them, and so that they can achieve their own personal goals. And this is the the end result then of this this manic excess of work driven by envy. And notice again, the emphasis is on the individual. The preacher speaks of one person who has no other. He's all by himself. He's alone in his pursuits. He's solitary. He's cut off his closest relationships. And the end result of that is utter and absolute loneliness and unhappiness. He says, for whom am I toiling? Why am I depriving myself of this pleasure? These are the questions of the empty person void of compassion who has no one with whom they can share life's toils and struggles and no one with whom they can enjoy God's good gifts in life under the sun. And so it is little wonder that people feel so isolated and lonely and depressed in our world despite the ability to connect in ways that prior generations could have only imagined. Our connections are so superficial. We have followers on Twitter and on Instagram and we have Facebook friends and we engage with them perhaps frantically hours each day interacting with the world but never developing real relationships or we neglect the ones that we do have and so we fill our life with sorrow because we're so focused on ourselves. Indeed, isolation and loneliness can happen in a crowd. And it happens when a person is so consumed, again, with themselves. The preacher tells a story in verses 13 and 16. And it points us to another problem of this individualism. He tells a story about a foolish king who was supplanted by a youth who was poor in his land. And This king was supplanted and overthrown because he refused to listen to others. He refused to take advice from those with whom he once listened. He had been consumed with his own self. And so he isolated himself. And the wise youth supplants him because he did listen to others. But then the preacher throws in an ironic twist in the story. 
It's kind of hard to follow this. It's, it's hard to translate it into English. But what happens here is, is the youth himself is now replaced by another king. Because he had become popular, he was surrounded by so many people, but that popularity faded over time. And the people were no longer happy with him. And so the preacher uses his favorite phrase, this also is a vanity and striving after wind. This is also senseless and futile. And his point is simply this, is that popularity itself, having many people around you, it is not the goal. Yes, we need relationships, as we'll see in a moment. We need community and companionship. But simply being popular isn't the goal. For that too is driven by self-interest and individualism. So worshiping yourself truly does harm yourself and others. It leads to oppression and envy and laziness and loneliness and despair and empty popularity. It is all the fruit of individualism. So Solomon, the preacher king, as he observes the world and he sees all this, he observes a better way of life as well. And it is simply this, living for others is better than living for myself. And living with others is better than living by myself. And so he gives us a proverb in verse 9. And then he follows it with, with three practical examples of why this proverb is true. And the proverb is simply this. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. He's simply stating a principle that is founded in the very creation of the universe itself. You see, when God created the world, when he created the universe and all that exists, he placed Adam in the garden to care for it. He gave him meaningful work to do. And he looked at all that God had created and God said, this is very good. But there was one thing that was not good. So God says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a helper that is fit for him. And of course, God puts Adam to sleep and he creates Eve, the first woman, to be his wife. And God institutes marriage there in creation. But not only does he start marriage, from that a principle arises. It is the principle of community and companionship. It is rooted in creation. God created us and designed us to dwell and to live with others and for each other, serving one another. It's a principle that we see as God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to start families, to build communities. And that command, be fruitful and multiply, is repeated after the judgment of the flood that destroyed all the earth but Noah's family. God wanted the earth to be filled with people who work together and enjoy life together, who have families and build friendships, to marry and have children and flourish together because two are better than one. Because then they have a good reward for their toil and life under the sun. 
Two are better than one, says Solomon, because they provide comfort when one suffers. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him. Back in verse 1, the preacher lamented at the oppressed and the oppressors having no one to comfort them. And singularity and isolation, they will make that sting of suffering and sin far more painful. But if someone is there to help, to console, to come alongside, to lift up, there's hope. There is restoration. There is deliverance. Two are better than one because they provide comfort. But two are better than one for they provide for one another. Again, says the preacher in verse 11, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? In the arid climate of the ancient Near East, nights would be very cold. And they didn't have heating systems like we do now. And so the way you would heat a tent in the desert, in the wilderness, or even a house, is you filled it with as many people as possible. And it was the body heat of others that helped warm the interior. There weren't blankets or sleeping bags like we see now. So if people were out traveling on a journey and had to sleep by the side of the road, they would lie next to each other with the hope of avoiding freezing. And the point of all that is simply to say that one of the benefits of companionship, of being in a community, is that there is provision for each other. If you have a need, others can step in to help and meet it. If you see others with a need, you can help them and they can help you. In the first human community of marriage, Eve was said to be a helper fit for Adam to, to provide for the areas in which he lacked in ability and in function. And back in the early church, we read that believers did not live as loners isolated, but they lived together in community. Acts 2, 44 through 46 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now this was not the first communist society. That is not what's being described there. What you do see, though, is a community of faith that cared for one another and each member provided for each other as they were able. They worked together, ate together, worshipped together, did life together, and provided for each other's needs. And so two are better than one because there is comfort. And two are better than one because there is provision. And two are better than one, says Solomon, because there is protection. The preacher writes in verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, there's safety in numbers. One who walks a street at night by himself can easily fall victim and prey to those who would seek to rob him, to harm him. But it's hard to fight against two people or more. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
Protection is one of the reasons that cities and towns were created. People could live together and prevent attacks and provide safety for one another. God designed the church, His covenant community, to be a place of safety, a refuge from those who look to do spiritual harm to His people. Paul called the church the pillar and buttress that is simply a wall a protection of the truth, that being the gospel. There's no such thing as a loner Christian. Faith fails to function by itself. It happens in community, the covenant community of God's people. So two are better than one because companionship gives comfort and two are better than one because companionship offers provision and two are better than one because companionship offers protection and the preacher's point is simply that instead of living by ourselves for ourselves in this world of expressive individualism and self-interest let us live as we not me seeking companionship and community with God's people. But how do you do that? Because the more you think about it, the more we really are consumed with ourselves. That very first transgression of God's law was one of sinful self-expression. I mean, Eve took that forbidden fruit because she wanted to be like God. She was not thinking about Adam when she gave him that fruit to try. And when he took it from her and ate of it himself, he wanted to be like God. He was not thinking of Eve. They were not thinking of each other. They were not focused on the consequences of their sinful transgression of God's law, their disobedience. And that is our legacy as humans. We see it all over in the world. This expressive individualism is the new religion of the day. But it's not really new, is it? It's the same old expression of human pride within our hearts. We want what's best for us. So how do you fix that? How do you live, as Solomon saw, the better way for others, with others? Well, you can't fix it. But Jesus can. And Jesus does. Because He is the companion that we all need. You see, we must stop worshiping ourselves and start worshiping Christ as Lord. That's repentance. That is faith in the gospel. The only way you can begin to live a life for others and with others rather than for yourself is by stopping worshiping yourself and start worshiping Christ your Lord and worshiping God. For Jesus really is that companion we all need. He understood our need for companionship and community. In fact, one of the first things we see him do on earth when he begins his earthly ministry is what? He gathers together his disciples. First, he calls Peter and Andrew to himself. And then they see James and John the sons of Zebedee, and they say, hey, follow this Jesus with us. And in no time, 
they have a little band of 12 disciples. The beginning of God's kingdom on earth. This was God's people. This was the church. This was a covenant community united in faith around the Savior that they worshipped. And it is the very purpose for which Christ came to gather together His elect, a community of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every ethnicity, and bringing them together to do what? To worship God, to enjoy Him, to glorify Him forever. And so it all starts, this better way of life, it all starts with the gospel. It starts with worshiping the right person. Jesus Christ. This world is crying out for companionship and community. And people are pursuing their own self-interest, running in circles around each other and bumping into each other and causing great harm. And as we see oppression, envy, loneliness, laziness, empty popularity, they are all the fruit of that and they are all destroying the world, but there is a companion that is called the friend of sinners. And his name is Jesus. For Jesus brings comfort to the oppressed. And he brings hope to the oppressor. And calling them both to repentance in him. And Jesus was not envious of others. But he was willing to humble himself, become a servant, go to the cross to suffer in our place. Jesus does not sit in idleness. He is not lazy, but he is always at work in this world for the salvation of his people. He did what needed to be done by going to the cross and rising again and now ascending. He is at work to redeem his people from their sins. And Jesus was willing to suffer lonely despair and be abandoned by His closest friends so that He might give us hope to the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus didn't seek empty popularity. He didn't look to build His own ego. But He gave His own life for those who hated Him so that He might redeem them from that hatred. Yes, Jesus is that companion that both you and I need. And when we are united in Him, we are united together into His family, into His people who worship Him forever. And so let us then leave behind worshiping ourselves and instead worship the One who gives us real hope and real happiness and real joy. And may we be as God's people, as a church, filled with a sense to call others to this great friend of sinners that we now know, seeing that is our mission as a church, to point others to Him who is our comforter and friend. So let us live for others and with others by living for and with Christ. For all eternity, let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful again for your word and for this truth of the gospel that you give us. We're thankful that we have a Savior who is closer than a brother. 
who is willing to give of himself so that we might have true and everlasting life in your presence and make us part of your people. So impress upon us then this better way of life that comes only through your gospel. And may we have the courage to share it with others. May we be the one that dries the tears of the oppressed and the oppressor calling him to repentance. May we be the ones that bring comfort and hope to others through the gospel as we ourselves come to our comforter and friend, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.